0: The whole wedding party waited anxiously as the minutes and seconds ticked by in agonizingly slow anticipation. The naturally energetic 3-year-old ring bearer fidgeted as much as he could given his clothing, the adult supervision, and the venue. Weddings are usually high anxiety affairs to begin with, but this one came with an extra layer of stress. It had nothing to do with the groom or the bride getting cold feet. Indeed, Joe Meltzer and Hazel Goldberg were certain that they wanted to tie the knot. The problem, however, is how exactly they wanted to do so, which is why the entire ceremony was currently on pause. So everyone just sort of paced around that winter morning in Phoenix, awaiting the one last needed thing before the happy couple could start their new lives together. Then, out somewhere in the distance church bells began to ring across the town. Everyone must have perked up as the sound caught their ears. This could be the moment they had waited for. Confirmation finally came in the form of a messenger who arrived with the long-anticipated news. The wedding party all took their places, and the ceremony finally proceeded. The date was Valentine's Day that's not why Joe and Hazel were married that morning. No, the young couple from the Salt River Valley had decided upon a goal that encapsulated both the hope they had for their lives together and for the place they called home. So when the messenger arrived with the good news that morning, Joe and Hazel were able to have their marriage be the first one to happen in the brand new state of Arizona. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, And you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 167, Statehood. Welcome back, everyone, and welcome to a very important episode of this podcast. It's special for two big reasons, the first of which is that the day before this episode hit your feed was February 10th, 2024, which marked my fourth anniversary of putting out this humble little podcast. When I started, I knew that this would be a big undertaking, but I had no idea that I would still be putting this out four years later. I also had no idea that there would be literally thousands of people listening to this, nor that some would actually throw a few bucks my way to help me purchase books for research, nor that I would actually get people inviting me to come and speak about Arizona history. It's been such a crazy, wild ride, so I want to thank everyone who has listened or continues to listen to my ramblings about what happened in our little corner of the world. But I think the biggest thing that I didn't realize when I started is that it would take me four long years to actually get to Arizona finally becoming a state. And that's the second big reason this episode is so important. In three days from when this airs, Arizona will have its 112th birthday. Just as we are finally getting to talk about statehood. Don't get me wrong, I love everything we covered so far and how much I've learned along the way, but I could never have predicted that it would take me this long to get to this important milestone. I'm also a little sort of relieved because I can't tell you how many times I've had to mentally check myself while writing these episodes to not say the state did this or that, but instead the territory did this or that. It's going to feel really good not to have to police myself over that moving forward. Finally, before we get into the meat of today's episode, I did want to circle around to something I said last week and make a clarification. Toward the end of the previous episode, I made a small joke about how the Constitutional Convention put in a clause banning polygamy because no one liked the Mormons. And while I firmly believe this clause was aimed in that direction, I should point out that the convention was a little behind the times. The church itself had mostly put an end to the practice after 1890 when President Wilford Woodruff issued what is called the Manifesto to help end intense federal persecution. In 1904, President Joseph F. Smith issued what was known as the Second Manifesto, which clarified that the church's position against polygamy applied worldwide and not just in the United States for political reasons. It would take decades before anyone really believed him, but... That's a different story. Polygamy at the time was seen, especially by Republicans, as a relic of barbarism. So, given Arizona's heavy Mormon population, its ban was probably always going to wind up in the Constitution. But I just wanted to make it clear that my joke was just that a joke, and that I know that Mormons were no longer practicing polygamy at the time the Constitution was crafted. Okay. So with all the preliminaries out of the way, we can finally start with the meat of today's episode. So last week, the Constitutional Convention in Phoenix wrapped up its work, creating a document that a large majority of its delegates could agree on. Sorry, Republicans, you were just beaten on this one. But now came the true hurdle. You might remember that as part of the Enabling Act passed in June 1910, Arizona and New Mexico both had to submit whatever they came up with to Congress and President William Howard Taft for their approval. While New Mexico built a constitution that was the stuff conservative dreams were made of, Arizona had taken a hard left, if you'll forgive the pun. There was a lot in there that was very pro-labor and sought to rein in corporations, but the most odious provisions to Republicans in Congress were the Voter Initiative, Referendum, and Recall. By the by, I just sort of started talking about these terms a few episodes back and now realize that I never really stopped to define them. So, as a too-long-didn't-read version of a high school civics class, an initiative is where voters can directly propose laws or constitutional amendments that are then voted on. A referendum is an election where voters decide whether to repeal or uphold an enacted law. And the one that's going to be the biggest sticking point of all is recall, which is just what it says on the tin. An election for voters to decide whether to recall elected officials, including judges. It's the inclusion of these three, often said to have been borrowed from the constitutions of such states as Oregon and Oklahoma, that really made the passage of Arizona's Constitution questionable. In fact, the Constitution as passed by the convention was signed by the Territorial Secretary because Territorial Governor Richard E. Sloan was back in Washington, D.C., actively arguing against Congress approving the Constitution as written. And one of his main points was the inclusion of the initiative, referendum, and recall. Because of their inclusion, Sloan would say, quote, Arizona stands just as much chance of annexation to statehood under the Russian Empire as it does of admission to statehood under the Constitution, end quote. He went on to say that at a recent conference of governors, he had talked about these three issues and found that not one of the officials there were eager at all for these novel new progressive political tools. Again, the conservative argument boiled down to that the direct democracy provisions were an invitation for mob rule and that all of this anti-corporation language struck at the heart of the right to property. Oh, and the adjective socialist was being thrown around a lot too. Arizona's delegate to Congress, the Republican Ralph Cameron, agreed with the arguments and added what everyone else was thinking that voter approval of the Constitution, especially with the initiative, referendum, and recall, would only serve to delay statehood. And we must admit that he turned out to be right on that score. Added to the litany of naysayers was also Marcus Aurelius Smith, who, although a lifelong Democrat, was part of the more conservative wing of his party, and he warned the electorate that the President and Congress would never sign off on this liberal monstrosity of a document. Meanwhile, the pro-Constitution-as-written forces were also gearing up for the battle ahead and founded the Arizona Statehood League, which elected George W.P. Hunt president. The League's job was to pull together not only voter support for the Constitution, but also the endorsement of various national figures who could lend it some gravitas. This included Ben Lindsay, a famous judge of the era from Denver, future president and current governor of New Jersey, Woodrow Wilson, who wrote that, quote, all the liberal tendencies shown in the Constitution have my warm sympathy, end quote. And the living symbol of the progressive era, William Jennings Bryan. And Bryan would actually travel to Phoenix to speak in favor of the new Constitution, especially initiatives, referendums, and recalls, stating, quote, These are most important because they put the government in the hands of the people and enable the people to coerce obedience to their will." Just under two months after the Constitutional Convention ended, the vote over whether to ratify the Constitution came before the people of the territory on February 9, 1911, because every important date in the history of Arizona's formation is contractually obligated to happen in February. Believe it or not, my main sources actually give me different numbers for the final tally, but the vote was another blowout for the progressives, with more than 12,000 territorial residents electing to ratify the Constitution and just under 4,000 people voting to reject it. Now, the cushy 77% majority there seems to speak to the fact that Arizonans definitely wanted this Constitution, but there were some mitigating factors here. Early state historian James H. McClintock tells us that some 12,200 fewer people voted in this special election than had cast a ballot in the last general election in 1908, and historian James Wagner says that many in the territory were actually undecided and so failed to vote. The final tally of yays on the Constitution constituted less than half of the territory's eligible voting population. But whatever asterisk we could add about low voter turnout, decisions are made by those who show up, and those who showed up to the ballot box in February 1911 had made their decision clear. The Arizona Gazette ran a banner headline reading, Popular Government Succeeds Old Regime, Special Interests Dethroned. And with that, the ball was now back in Congress's and President Taft's court. As soon as the results of the special vote were made known, everyone started holding their breaths to see how those in Washington would respond. Would they be so narrow-minded and partisan as to shoot down the Constitution over a few provisions that wouldn't affect them at all? Or would they recognize this as a fait accompli and just give their stamp of approval? The day after the vote, Governor Sloan told residents he still hoped for statehood, as outlined in the 1910 Enabling Act, but was pretty sure that Taft was never going to sign the thing as long as the recall of judges remained. In the following months, Hunt made several trips to Washington to keep up lobbying efforts to convince Congress that the Constitution wasn't so bad and that they really should just let Arizona do its own thing. Meanwhile, Cameron... The territory's congressional delegate managed to anger Hunt and many in Arizona after supporting a proposal to eliminate judicial recall from the recently ratified constitution as a condition for statehood. This proposal also seems to have come after he had conferred with Taft on the matter. And Cameron made the usual arguments about it was the necessary political compromise, sacrificing what most people in the territory were ambivalent toward, while gaining what nearly everyone in the territory actually wanted. Hunt was livid about the proposal and proceeded to vilify Cameron in his personal correspondence. He would write a letter to a friend that Cameron had been engaged, quote, in secret work against us, end quote, and that the word traitor was too good for him. I should also point out here that Hunt also kept repeating what he had said during the convention and before the ratification vote in Arizona. That is that Congress and the President wouldn't dare strike down this constitution that had been approved by the voters in the territory. Surely they wouldn't try to invalidate the will of the people duly voted on in a free and open election. And he held to this belief going into the summer of 1911 which was bolstered by the U.S. Senate voting 58-18 to in favor of Arizona statehood. When he was told in July 1911 that Taft was likely to veto statehood over the issue of judicial recall, Hunt declared that he would rather have Arizona remain a territory than bow down to this kind of intimidation. Finally, though, the decisive moment arrived. Despite petitions letters and all the lobbying from hunt and those in his camp taft could not bring himself to approve the constitution on august 15th 1911 he vetoed the resolution coming from the senate writing in his message about the recall of judges quote this provision is so pernicious in effect so destructive of the independence of the judiciary that it is likely to subject the rights of individuals to possible tyranny it is so injurious to the cause of free government that I must disapprove the constitution containing it." End quote. So, despite all of Hunt's retort to the contrary, the president did exactly what he told Arizonans in 1909 he would do should a constitution with judicial recall come across his desk. We'll get into the reaction of the territory in a second. But I should point out that Taft did receive criticism from other corners regarding this veto. The first was from the press. The American Review of Reviews, which just a couple short years beforehand had snickered at the idea of granting the desert sands of Arizona statehood, actually rose to their defense on this occasion. The journal wrote, quote, if the people of Arizona are indeed fit for statehood, and if they should be allowed to send two senators to Washington to help govern the entire country, they must surely be regarded as competent to settle for themselves the various details of their domestic government. Quote. Another advocate came from the man who had just recently returned from Arizona after dedicating their splendid new dam, Theodore Roosevelt. Though not a fan of judicial recall himself, Roosevelt felt that the state could decide for itself how to handle these matters, especially since a similar provision already existed in the constitutions of at least two other states. Plus, he argued this was the only sticking point. Other than that, no one had really any problems with the rest of the document. In fact, T.R. was a self-acknowledged fan of it. He wrote, quote, "'After considerable study of the document, I have come to the conclusion that it is an unusually good constitution.' I feel I should offer some context here that by this time, Roosevelt had grown disenchanted with his hand-picked successor, Taft, and was actually planning to run against him in the upcoming 1912 election. So, we can see his deriding Taft's veto as possibly the product of this quickly souring relationship. Surprisingly enough, none of my sources give any examples of outrage from inside Arizona or among its elected officials over the veto. I have no doubt that there was some, and they may have all vented privately, but one of the reasons I don't think that it was really recorded is that A, everyone could have seen this coming, and B, events moved too swiftly in the immediate aftermath. Since the judicial recall was the only thing holding up the adaptation of their constitution, there was a movement to simply drop the offending provision and let it finally sell through. I mean, they had their labor friendly provisions and the initiative and in the referendum, so recall wasn't a hill that they had to die on. Even Hunt, who had vowed to remain a territory rather than to submit to this strong arming, came around on the idea. On August 21st, so just six days after Taft's veto, the president would sign the Flood-Smith resolution coming out of the Senate, which agreed to statehood if the electorate would take judicial recall out of the Constitution at an upcoming special election. There were some in Congress that had voted against this resolution on principle. I mean, come on, you have no right to tell Arizona what to do, but overall, Everyone agreed to this compromise. Governor Sloan immediately called for elections, with a general one on December 12, 1911 that would include the selection of state officers and to adopt the Constitution without judicial recall. The vote on the newly amended Constitution was 14,963 for and only 1,980 against, so again, Not the best turnout, but those who did come made their will known. I plan to talk about the selection of state leaders more in our next episode, but I want to keep on the subject of judicial recall. Because just because recall wasn't a hill Arizona was going to die on, it doesn't mean they abandoned the idea completely. Instead, removing the provision from the Constitution was more of a strategic retreat, the reason people were ready to amend the Constitution almost immediately after Taft's veto is because they had come to a realization. Eugene S. Ives, who served in both the Territorial House of Representatives and Council, summed up the new strategy when he said, quote, We have the best Constitution that was ever written, even with the recall out. We should take the judiciary recall feature out and then pledge each of our representatives in the first legislature to support the proposed amendment, reinstating the recall of the judiciary." End quote. So yeah, Taft could deny them judicial recall in their constitution now, but once Arizona was a state, they could just vote to amend the document and put it right back in there. Our old friend, the newspaper man Tom Whedon, would pen an open poem mocking Taft that included the lines, quote, "'We will tolerate your gall and surrender our recall, till safe within the statehood stall. Billy Taft, Billy Taft, then we'll fairly drive you daft with the ring of our horse laughed, Billy Taft, Billy Taft, as we joyously reinstall, by the vote of one and all, that ever-glorious recall, Billy Taft, Billy Taft. And that's exactly what happened. On November 5th, 1912, nine months after becoming a state, Arizona voters went to the ballot box and approved putting back in judicial recall. They also overwhelmingly voted for all the other presidential candidates running that year over Taft, just out of spite. So, neener, neener, neener. To be fair, in all likelihood, Taft himself, who was a jurist by training, realized that this was going to happen. In that case, his veto can be seen not so much as an attempt to stop it, but rather to show the depths of his displeasure and to follow up on his threats. So, Taft went down as a principled martyr, but Arizona still got its recall. The one practical effect of all this drama is that it allowed New Mexico to squeak ahead of Arizona and become the 47th state on January 6, 1912. However, this just means that Arizona now has claimed to be the last to be admitted into the continental U.S., which I personally think is a point of pride. The date of Arizona's admittance to the Union was if state historian Marshall Trimble is to be believed, a little bit of luck and coincidence. The paperwork was ready on February 12th, but that was Lincoln's birthday, which many people of a certain age will remember was a holiday. But the next day was the 13th, so the president couldn't sign something so important on such an ominous date. So it was that on Valentine's Day, February 14th, 1912, Taft finally sat down at his desk, golden pen in hand, while newfangled movie cameras filmed him. And we have to note the coincidence of this particular day. Fifty years earlier to the day, President Jefferson Davis signed a similar document admitting Arizona into the Confederacy as a territory. A less ironic, but not as staggering coincidence is that the signing was also 10 days short of the 49th anniversary of Abraham Lincoln signing his proclamation to make Arizona a U.S. territory, a label they had celebrated at the time but had been trying to throw off ever since. Wagner says that at 10.02 and 30 seconds a.m. Eastern Time, the president affixed his signature, officially welcoming Arizona into the Union. The gold pen was then turned over to Delegate Cameron as a thank you for all his hard work. The president then telegraphed Governor Slung with the news, adding, quote, I have this morning signed the proclamation declaring Arizona to be a state of the union. I congratulate the people of this, our newest commonwealth, upon the realization of their long-cherished ambition. Best wishes to the retiring and incoming officials, End quote. Thankfully, no one mentioned judicial recall to spoil the moment. In Arizona, the mood was jubilant. Governor Sloan had declared in advance that the day would be a holiday across the new state called, fittingly enough, Admission Day. Trimble says that the news flashed over the telegraph wires around 8.55 a.m. Arizona time, though I think he's off on this because either there was an incredible lag in letting people know or they had mistakenly gotten the news ahead of time. Either way, It was early morning on February 14th when church and school bells started ringing. And, this being the West, people started firing their pistols into the air. Down in Bisbee, apparently, they decided to go big and set off a charge of dynamite, which took the top off of a nearby mountain. As an editorial aside, I must admit that I'm very disappointed in McClintock, who you could usually count on to give at least a sentence or two describing celebrations, but he is unusually silent on the matter. In Phoenix, the newly elected Governor George W.P. Hunt walked from his hotel to the Capitol building, being joined by throngs of ecstatic citizens. At noon, he took the oath of office and gave his inaugural address, all of which we will talk about more in our next episode. Following that, there was a grand parade through the streets of Phoenix. And in the afternoon, William Jennings Bryan, on hand for the event, gave a two-hour speech to some 5,000 people at the city plaza. Even the Arizona Republican newspaper, the very voice of the opposition, had to laud Bryan's oratory, handling his remarks as, quote, one of the greatest public speeches heard from a Phoenix platform in a month of pink moons, end quote. According to Wagner, the real highlight of the day started that night when a grand inaugural ball was kicked off in front of the Hotel Adams, which had just been rebuilt the previous year following a devastating fire. Here, partygoers danced under electric lights to music being played by the band from the Phoenix Indian School, which we talked about back in episode 157. Just before midnight, the band would bring all of the celebrations to a crescendo with a rousing addition of the song Home Sweet Home. And with that, in Wagner's words the greatest day in Arizona history came to a close. But before we leave February 14th, 1912, may I Paul Harvey you for a moment? Remember that energetic three-year-old ring bearer that I mentioned in the introduction of today's episode as part of Joe and Hazel's wedding party? Well, that little boy waiting to do his part in the wedding was none other than Barry Goldwater. And now you know... The rest of the story. It still feels a little weird getting to this point, especially when we look back at everything the territory of Arizona went through to get here, not to mention the 166-episode journey we spent talking about it. Ignoring for a second the thousands of years of Amerindian inhabitation and the centuries of Spanish and then Mexican rule, we are still left with a long slog to make this happen. After the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo and the Gatston Purchase brought Arizona into the U.S. fold, we first start seeing agitation for territorial status in the 1850s, led by men such as Charles Poston and Sylvester Mowry. And funny enough, what they wanted was to be broken off from the territory of New Mexico, presaging by half a century the fight against joint statehood. Even then, the only reason Arizona became a territory in the 1860s was because gold had been discovered near Prescott, and the Confederates had moved in and tried to claim it first. Following the end of the Civil War, territorial residents always had one eye towards statehood, though this forever seemed out of their grasp as they dealt with the negative PR of first the Apache Wars and the shootout at the Old K. Corral, and then the shocking violence of the Pleasant Valley War. Arizonans also dealt with a parade of appointed officials, for better and for worse, And it wouldn't be until the call for home rule reached a fever pitch at the tail end of the 1880s that they actually received a governor who was living in the territory at the time of his appointment. Then we get into the stuff that is probably fresh in your memory. First, the fight to convince everyone that, yes, they really did belong at the big boys' table with everyone else. And secondly, the fight against such an idiotic idea as joint statehood with New Mexico. And we wrapped it all up with the drama over the draft constitution and the fight with Taft and Congress for their seal of approval. Yep, it's been a long, hard road to get there, but now it is done. The territory of Arizona is no more. From here on out, it will be the brand new state of Arizona, marching off into the future. And personally, I can't wait to see what that future holds. There will be no new episode next week, as I have some family obligations that will be keeping me busy over President's Day weekend. But join me back in two weeks as we talk about who exactly is heading up this new state and try to wrap up any loose ends from the territorial period. After that, we'll examine someone who has increasingly become a major player in our story, George W.P. Hunt, as he managed to stay at the top of Arizona's political food chain For 14 years. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ The History of Arizona. Goodbye.